Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, I'm talking transhumanism with writer Mark O'Connell and his book, To Be a Machine. Mark O'Connell is a journalist, essayist and literary critic from Dublin. He is a books columnist for Slate, a staff writer at The Millions and a regular contributor to The New Yorker's page-turner blog and The Dublin Review and his work has been published in the New York Times magazine, the New York Times Book Review, and The Observer. And Mark's first book is To Be a Machine, Adventures Among Cyborgs, Utopians, Hackers, and the Futurists Solving the Modest Problem of Death, which is published now by Grant and Mark. Welcome to Little Atoms. Thanks very much for having me. What's the idea behind To Be a Machine? Well, the book is about transhumanism, which is this uh, movement predicated on the idea that we can and we should use technology to kind of push out the boundaries of the human condition, up to and including literally becoming immortal. So that's kind of the the milieu that I'm investigating in the book. Um, but it also takes in lots of other things like sort of my own anxieties about mortality and death and technology and capitalism and America and all these sort of disparate sort of concerns come into the book as well. But it is fundamentally a sort of a, a journalistic investigation of this movement. So when did you first become aware of the movement? Why were you interested in it? I wrote a piece for a magazine maybe eight or nine years ago now, a magazine that I wrote for after college in Dublin called Mongrel. And it was a very short, not very in-depth piece, just sort of like there's this movement, there's these kind of people with these crazy ideas, here they are. Um, So it was quite a short piece, but for whatever reason, it never really went out of my head, and I kept sort of reading things about it over the years, and it would come back into my mind. But really what happened, and I talk about it in the first chapter of the book, um, I became a father about four years ago, and whatever it was about the experience of just early parenthood, I think like witnessing my wife give birth and like holding this tiny, fragile human being in my hands for the first time. And I just became, along with all this sort of joyful stuff about being a parent, I became sort of uh, morbidly obsessed with the fragility of, like, our lives in these bodies and the kind of overarching sort of reality of of mortality. Um, And so I think really what happened was, at this time, I kind of became obsessed again with with transhumanism and started reading a lot about it and thinking a lot about it. And I think really what it was was a, a way of, like, a psychoanalyst would probably call it a process of sublimation where I was channeling these kind of anxieties through this obsession with this movement that offered or seemed to offer a way out of this kind of condition. So 
Uh, for me, that's that's one of the kind of interesting things about being a writer is that a subject matter is always a way of writing about other things. It's always a kind of an excuse or an occasion to write about these uh, sort of vast array of anxieties and concerns. So transhumanism certainly kind of offered that for me. Before we get on to transhumanism proper, I want to talk about robots, first of all, mm. and where we are with robots now, I guess, um, before we talk about what might happen with them in the future. And in the book, you attend this event, the DARPA Robotic Challenge, which is this sort of, well, I get you to describe it, but it's like a sort of televised sport event almost. Mm. Yeah, that was one of the most fun experiences I had while writing the book, actually. Um, it was a, a two-day event in Pomona, just outside of Los Angeles, and it's organised by DARPA. DARPA is the sort of advanced research arm of the Pentagon, essentially. And the idea of it was that they sort of gathered all the sort of most um, sophisticated and most sort of advanced robotics groups in the country and across the world to compete on this kind of assault course scenario. And the, the idea behind it was that in sort of humanitarian sort of catastrophe situations like Fukushima, say, where it's very dangerous for human beings to go into these situations, that it would be very useful to have humanoid robots who could automate it, sort of, you know, autonomous humanoid robots that could negotiate these scenarios. And so what you had essentially was like an assault course set up where you had robots like driving cars, clambering over rubble, trying to sort of open doors and it was, yeah, it was set up almost like a kind of a sporting event, like sort of gladiators or something. And so there was a really sort of self-conscious um, funness about the event, which for me was fascinating, but also kind of it was very difficult to ignore the kind of underlying militaristic kind of subtext of all of this. And obviously there's a humanitarian kind of rhetoric around it, but ultimately you're talking about DARPA, you're talking about the Pentagon, so there's always this sense that these are the people who developed drones, these are the people who developed GPS as a as a war technology and you know they're kind of explicitly interested in transhuman technologies for purposes of war so there's a real dark subtext to this and in the way that I write about it in the book and we'll come back to DARPA and what else they might be doing mm. a bit later on but these robots I mean you talk about them you know going into Fukushima and stopping some sort of nuclear meltdown at the minute I wouldn't send them out to get me a coffee they're like comically bad the crap, at doing yeah. things that are second nature to I think as, as somebody as a famous aphorism in the book that you mentioned that they basically can't do things that like a one year old child could do right it's more of X paradox is what you're thinking of yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. so um, what's wrong with them what are the things that robots struggle to do that are second nature to humans well the paradox there is that things that are extremely difficult for us like calculations is very easy for machines to do and things that we don't even think about like you know walking in here to the studio and pulling out a chair, opening a door, incredibly complicated things, actually, even for ourselves, we just do them unconsciously. To watch robots trying to do these things is extraordinary. I mean, it's comic, for sure, but it also makes you realise um, we're kind of geniuses without knowing it. We do these incredibly kind of sophisticated, complicated things all the time. And you know, my son was learning to walk when I was when I was at this thing, so I was kind of I was seeing him reflected in the robots trying to sort of negotiate these difficult physical spaces. Um, but, yeah, it, like, it seems quite clear that we are quite a long way off having like you know autonomous robots who can sort of drive cars and negotiate difficult situations as humans would but the thing to remember and the thing that I kind of um, was struck by and write about in the book is that the first DARPA challenge was in I think um, I could be wrong but I think it was in 2003 and it was it was cars uh, so it was self-driving cars and most of the sort of self-driving cars that were built for that challenge got like they got nowhere on the course they got like 200 250 meters the 
car that got furthest overturned and sort of got halfway through the course or whatever. But then, you know, Google got involved and very, very quickly self-driving cars became a sort of a plausible project and we're seeing kind of the development of that now. So, yeah, sort of autonomous human robotics might not be as far off as you would think watching those robots fall on the horses. But none of these robots, this is not, you know, robot wars off the telly where it's some guy in his shed. These are all multi-million pound things. So how far away do you think we are for them actually being useful? Well, it depends on what you mean by useful. I think, like, the kinds of uses that you would, like, they're sort of explicitly inserting them into in the DARPA Robotics Challenge. It's really difficult to say. It, like, it looks like they're a long way off, but technology tends to develop at this sort of very slow for a long time, and then all of a sudden... It gets very sophisticated very quickly. Um, so, yeah, I would find it difficult to say. I mean, I do, like, look into those kind of trends and stuff in the book, but my sort of interest in the book is never really trying to predict the future. Um, I don't have the sort of the tools to do that, and it's not really what I'm trying to do as a writer. I'm more interested in, in the people who are predicting the future and the people who are, like, sort of fully invested in the future. I'm Alex Cox, and this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. You mentioned that one of the things that's underlying the ideas that you talk about in the book is the politics of it, the politics of the people that are creating these things, that care about them, the, you know, the, the tech billionaires that are mm. putting the money into a lot of these technologies. And, and with you know, the, the advance of robots, one of the obvious things is that there's a, there's a whole raft of jobs that are supposedly going to become obsolete, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, that was one of the things that I came out of the book very rattled by, you know, during the experience of reporting it. I kept, you know, most of the conversations that I was having and most of the people I, w- I was talking to were talking about very sort of remote, very kind of radical and sort of speculative ideas about the future of the merger of, you know, humans and machines and sort of uploading ourselves to super intelligent AI and all those sorts of things. But the thing that frightened me most was something that I think is unarguably coming quite soon, which is this whole new wave of automation that'll come from artificial intelligence. And that's, a, for me at least, a very kind of unsettling and quite bleak vista on the near to medium term future. Although this the whole sort of like Skynet AI mm. sort of idea is like we think it's a you know it's a thing from science fiction. Mm. There are people out there that are working on not many, not mm. enough, but some people that are out there working on these scenarios. You talk to a guy called Nick Bostrom. Mm. So tell us what, what he's doing. Yeah well Nick Bostrom is a philosopher and he's um, the director of a, a sort of a futurist um, think tank or research group in Oxford called the Future of Humanity Institute. And Nick is, he would not describe himself as a transhumanist. Um, I think he's no longer really a part of that movement, but he, he certainly was back in the 90s and early 2000s a very sort of formative figure in transhumanism. He's since kind of moved away from it into a kind of, he jokes about being more of a Luddite now because he's he's the kind of person who's laid out the sort of um, the dangers of really advanced AI and what could happen as a result of developing Um, superhuman artificial intelligence and the idea is that to put it very sort of bluntly and maybe oversimplistically that the danger is that a superhuman AI might well sort of treat us in a way quite similar to how we've treated kind of lower life forms and it's not a completely absurd fear to have when you look at like how things go in the sort of you know evolutionary food chain you know you invent something that's much much smarter than you it's quite possible that it's not going to go well for you and there's this um What's the, the sort of thought experiment about the paperclip manufacturing? Tell us that. Yeah, well, that's, I mean, um, Nick Bostrom's book, Superintelligence, he comes up with this, I think, sort of self-consciously quite absurd and cartoonish sort of illustration of how this might play out. But I think it's, like, it's it's a really sort of compelling sort of thought experiment because it sort of, it acknowledges that 
uh, well, the, the, the scenario that he's laying out is basically you have an artificial intelligence that is owned by um, a paperclip manufacturer. And um, if you're a paperclip manufacturer, you're going to sort of train your AI on how do you um, most efficiently and you know productively make paperclips and how do you make as much paperclips as possible and as much profit as possible. And you just point the AI in that direction and you say, solve this problem. And so the AI's way of doing that would be very different to our own, much less nuanced in a way. And so what the AI would do would be maybe turn everything in the world into paperclips and paperclip manufacturing facilities. So, you know, it's obviously a very cartoonish way of thinking about this problem, but I think the underlying concern is not that artificial intelligence would be malicious. It's not a sort of a Skynet, you know, Terminator-type scenario where we create this Frankenstein-type thing and it comes after us out of vengeance or whatever. Why did you create me? It's that computers are... I mean, the way I think of it when I was looking at this stuff, it's, it's actually not artificial intelligence that's the problem. It's artificial stupidity. So, you know, a computer thinks about things in a very different, very kind of sort of hardline, rationalistic way. And so one of the other examples that was given to me was by... Stuart Russell, who's a professor of AI at Berkeley, and his sort of argument is that, well, say you have an AI and you train it on curing cancer, and the AI's way of doing that, the most sort of straightforward and logical way of doing that would be to wipe out every life form on Earth on which it's possible for the abnormal division of of cells to occur. Uh, So then you've suddenly wiped out all life. And again, it's like it's a very extreme example, but there are problems inherent in the sort of, in the concept of artificial superintelligence. Um, I was never fully convinced that this was a realistic thing to be worried about. There were moments where I was like, you know, I spent a lot of time in rooms with people who were sort of vastly more intelligent than I was. So there was a sort of a, a, a kind of a mise on a beam there of like, you know, am I the human and they're the superintelligence? But the thing is that like, I was always kind of a bit skeptical about my own skepticism. I would think, you know, this is crazy. Why are we worried about this when we have, you know, climate change and, you know, vast wealth inequality to worry about but at the same time I couldn't totally discount it because these are people who truly understand AI and how it works and um, think that there's something to be worried about there not that it's something that's necessarily going to happen or even likely to happen but if it were to happen and even if it's just a small sliver of a possibility it would be absolutely catastrophic so it's worth thinking about and that's where sort of people like Nick Bostrom and and Stuart Russell are coming from. As we go into the next part of the show I want to start talking about mind mapping and sort of brain simulation Mm. but to get us there, I think this is a good point to bring up the idea of the singularity. I think that I think now is tends to be associated with Ray Kurzweil, but I think it. I think you mentioned that it predates him. Yeah, I mean the singularity. I mean, it arguably comes out of not philosophers or futurists, but science fiction. But again, it like it's it was formulated first of all by people thinking about artificial intelligence and I mean the singularity is almost like the sort of less bleak version of what we've just been talking about um, so the idea is that at a certain point and this is certainly how Kurzweil talks about it and he is the most sort of he's a sort of popularizer of the singularity the kind of high priest of the idea and he describes it as well we're going to get to at a certain point we're going to get to human level AI you know at that point it's he bases it on the idea of the exponential and you know very shortly afterwards we're going to get to superhuman AI and the AI will be able to kind of program itself and make itself more sophisticated and then he takes this leap into what seems to me to be a basically kind of religious idea that at this point sort of sort of an eschatological notion that at this point everything changes it's a kind of it's an end times sort of prophecy everything changes we will reach such a point of sophistication in our technology that we'll be able to upload our minds to machines and we'll be able to merge with artificial superintelligence and become disembodied or like multiply embodied superhuman intelligent beings and we won't 
sort of have to deal with these bodies, we won't have to die, everything will change. And so that's kind of the basic notion of the singularity. He says it's going to happen in 2045, this is well. I mean, he has a quite impressive track record of predicting technological change, but I'm not sure how seriously this notion of the singularity happening at all, but certainly in 2045 is taken, even among the more uh, faithful transhumanists, I think he's seen as being, well, you know, he's he's got some interesting ideas. And the reason why he sort of gets so much airtime, I think, is because he's saying that this is going to happen in our lives, in our lifetimes. But yeah, it's pretty, pretty far out there, pretty sort of almost, I think, explicitly religious. <laughs> This is Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Mark O'Connell and we're talking about his book, To Be a Machine. And Mark, in the first part, you mentioned Moravec's paradox. Um, I want to talk about Hans Moravec a bit because he's somebody who believes that one day, as you've just been mentioned when talking about the singularity, that we're going to, to be able to basically upload our minds to something to liberate us from and I say these words quite self-consciously, liberators from the prison of our bodies. Tell us something about him and his idea. Yeah, well, he, I mean, he's a roboticist at um, Carnegie Mellon. And um, so Moravec outlines this scenario in one of his books, whereby, and it's quite sort of um, gruesomely detailed, um, The he's talking about the brain being scanned by an AI robot and um, the sort of actual grey matter being removed from the skull as it's as it's scanned and sort of thrown away. And so um, there's this really quite explicit idea that our bodies are just meat and that we happen to be substantiated right now in this sort of meat machine is another phrase that keeps coming up in transhumanism. Uh, but that what really what we really are is a consciousness and that consciousness can potentially be run on any substrate, um, not just the substrate of the human body, but sort of any any kind of machine so yeah and there's an implicit kind of sense that once that happens we will be liberated from our humanity our kind of fallen state so there's like there's all kinds of connections between um this stuff and various sort of forms of religious discomfort with the body one of the comparisons i make in the book and i would not be the first to make this comparison is with the sort of early christian uh, heresy of gnosticism their belief was that we were trapped in the flesh and that the flesh was evil and that we were kind of um, a divine spirit that needed to escape from from the flesh, and so I mean, transhumanists are aware of of these kind of connections. They're not terribly comfortable talking about them because they tend to be very extreme rationalists, and for them, any kind of sense that there's a connection with religion or that there might be a religious dimension to their thinking is is troubling, and they don't really want to go there. There's also a lot of parallels or, you know, wholesale stealing from sort of liberation movements of like the transgender movement, for instance, it seems. Like these people a lot of these people genuinely seem to think that mm. we're trapped in these bodies and these bodies are wrong. Yeah, I mean one of the more prominent transhumanists is a woman named Martine Rothblatt, who I think is the highest paid CEO in America. She founded um she founded the company Sirius, which is the satellite radio company. Uh, but she's transgender and she talks about transhumanism sort of through her own experience with being transgender. It's interesting. I'm not sure how convincing it is, but you do. I mean, it is it is a, a kind of a rhetoric that comes up with various transhumanists that you talk to. There's a guy I spent time with for my book, Tim Cannon, who's 
a sort of self-proclaimed cyborg. He runs this company called Grindhouse Wetware in, in Pittsburgh in Pennsylvania. And he and his colleagues uh, design and build technologies for implanting inside themselves to give them sort of superhuman capabilities. But these guys, and Tim in particular, is really sort of uh, really extreme in the way that he talks about wanting to escape from the condition of embodiment, wanting to be out of his kind of animal form. And yeah, when I talked to him, he used quite a lot of rhetoric that was sort of borrowed from from the language of transgender people, um, which is, I mean, I can see where he's coming from. He, he would say that, you know, transgender people say that they're born in the wrong body and he would say that well, we're all born in the wrong body. I'm in the wrong body because I'm, I'm in a body at all. And so, yeah, I kind of passed over that more or less unremarked, but I think it's fairly obvious that that would be sort of troubling to transgender people. And I've spoken to, to trans people who've read the book and they've found that part particularly kind of difficult to swallow, I think, understandably. I wanted to get to Tim Cannon later on, but we might as well talk about those guys now. So as you said, you know, they, they describe themselves as a cyborg. You said that you know their idea is to to give ourselves superhuman abilities, which makes it sound like the X Men mm-hmm. or something. But I mean, realistically, what they're doing is like removing the the, the worry of ever having to lose your Oyster <clears throat> card or whatever right. at, at the moment, aren't yeah. they? Where are they going with that? Well, it's I mean, yeah, it's very mildly superhuman capabilities at the moment. I mean, the guys that I was hanging out with, they all had sort of chips in their hands that allowed them to open their laboratory door. Um, so that, you know, you, you could just sort of wave your hand and the door would open. One of the guys, Marlow, who's this young um, Australian fella who'd come over from, from Western Australia to work with Grindhouse, had a chip in his hand, but he hadn't got clearance yet. So the chip was just sort of sitting there waiting to become useful. And so that was about as far as he'd got um, in terms of becoming a cyborg. But for these guys, like it is, it's like they're aware that these technologies are, you know, not primitive, but they, they're not like terribly sophisticated. And, you know, a lot of this stuff you could do with a phone and you wouldn't need sort of unlicensed surgery to to do that but for them it's kind of like I describe it in the book as a kind of a performance art gesture in a way it's a sort of a gesture towards the sort of the notion of becoming you know embodied in something other than flesh and they're really serious about this and they want to be uploaded minds in machines I want to talk about what that would actually involve and I don't mean necessarily the technology but I guess why they want to do it like everything I can think of that makes being human fun is to do with some sort of like sensory thing, whether it's touching somebody or eating something yeah. or whatever. What is there to do if you're basically just a, a piece of software in an incredibly powerful mainframe somewhere? Right. Well, I mean, I had a lot of these conversations where I would say some version of what you're saying with transhumanists. And always what I kept sort of hitting up against eventually was what I saw is like a really extreme sort of mechanistic view of what it actually means to be human. So that they would say, you know, if you make that argument, a lot of transhumanists would say, but that you are just a machine. So, you, you know, your pleasure response is, you know, is, is a response to a stimulus. And that's a basically machinic kind of way of being in the world. And, you know, to like transport that over to a more sophisticated machine is, is not like inherently um, impossible or undesirable. And, but so you're right. I mean, like I found myself being backed into kind of positions of like being quite conservative in terms of like, you know what? Death is good. It's good that we're in these bodies and that we're mortal and that we sort of, you know, become decrepit over time and we die. And I don't know if I necessarily believe that, actually. I'm still pretty uncomfortable about about sort of death and degradation. But there is something that I found myself sort of coming closer to when I was writing the book that... You know, if there is meaning in life, it is from it is from being embodied. It is from bodily kind of mammalian meaning. It's and it has to do with the fact that we die, that we're only here for a short time, and that you know we're fragile, and you know 
you know, love is a is a bodily thing. Um, but so, like, it's difficult because they would look at me and say, yeah, but, you know, you can translate that to a machine. That's not a problem. We'll just, we'll get there eventually. So, yeah, it's, like, it's it's difficult to kind of defend your your sort of humanism against transhumanists. Let's perhaps talk a little bit about how we get there. So you talked to a guy, uh, Randall Cohn, yeah. who's um, he's working on this idea of whole brain emulation. Yeah. What would that involve? Well, so Randall is... Um, He's a computational neuroscientist. Um, he's Dutch, but his, he works in Silicon Valley, unsurprisingly now. But his whole kind of life's work is around sort of defining the possibilities and the prospects for extracting consciousness from the substrate of the brain. And so, yeah, he's, he's, he describes himself as an architect um, in that he doesn't do original research, but he kind of collates research that, that's being done by other scientists and puts it together and sort of makes connections between scientists working in various relevant fields like um, brain scanning and digital microscopy and these kinds of things. And his his sort of whole work is predicated on the idea that consciousness, the mind, is reducible to information, that everything we are, all our kind of emotions and memories and feelings, it's all reducible to like the firing of neurons and the connections between neurons and you can kind of you can represent that as data and that data is transferable to computational code and can be run on some other substrate other than the brain so it just so happens that the machine on which we're run right now is the brain but that doesn't mean that it, it couldn't run on anything else so yeah there's a lot of kind of there's some serious sort of scientific questions around like how viable this is and um, I think the scientific consensus will be that it's at best a very, very remote possibility that you could translate the brain into code. But I did speak to some scientists who felt that it was at least theoretically possible and that Randall was not out of his mind, as it were. But there are plenty of neuroscientists who think that this is nonsense. Yeah, I would say most neuroscientists. I mean, I didn't talk by any means to like a, to a, a huge number of neuroscientists, but the impression I get is that they don't take this stuff all that seriously. There are some who do enough to kind of to sort of rattle that consensus but it's certainly a very remote kind of theoretical possibility but Randall is has dedicated his life to to figuring out how it might be done but again this is one of those things that and these are these will keep cropping up as we especially as we get into the you know the sort of attempts to beat death yeah as we go along there's a lot of money being put into this you know there are tech billionaires out there that Obviously, for rather obvious reasons, we don't need to go into. Yeah. Want to live forever? Yeah. Um, and so this is not some minority thing. There's, there's serious no. money going into this. Serious money, yeah, like real, real money, real Silicon Valley money. The first thing I heard about transhuman actu- transhumanism actually was years and years ago. I um, did an interview with Steve Call, who's the staff writer for the New Yorker, wrote that book Ghost Wars, and he was, I think, just as an aside, talking about a party that he'd been at in Silicon Valley. And it was sort of towards the end of the evening and people were sort of standing out on the balcony and there was all these like quite young people who had made just billions through mainly Google. And, you know, the question came up, so what are you going to do next? You're 35 or whatever, you've made all your money, what are you going to do next? And a couple of them said, well, we need to look at the problem of mortality. We need to figure out how we can how we can kind of, you know, stick around long enough to spend all this money, basically. And so that was the first kind of thing that I heard about transhumanism. So, you know, immediately it was linked to this broader culture of kind of sort of techno-libertarianism and the sort of 
radical belief in the possibilities of technology to solve every problem, including death. So there's yeah, there's big money being played into this stuff. Google, in back in 2014, set up this biotechnology research firm called Calico, which is uh, explicitly aimed at sort of pushing out the horizon of mortality. I mean, they're not talking about making us immortal machines or anything. It's sort of, it's quite sort of uh, respectable science that's being done there. But they are looking at how we can sort of push back the boundaries of mortality. And Peter Thiel is another very strong example of, I mean, it, it almost got to the point where when I was writing the book that Thiel started to seem like the unacknowledged kind of protagonist of the book, or at least his money did. His money was everywhere. All the people I talked to, all the technologies I was looking at, all the research I was looking into, his venture capital funds, various sort of arms were in all of this stuff. And so, yeah, Thiel is, is sort of radically invested literally in the prospect for immortality, particularly his own immortality seems to be what he's most interested in. And then to bring us back to you know, Tim Cannon and those sort of grinder guys, and more specifically bringing back in DARPA, and you know we talked about that, the fun side of DARPA that you, you went and witnessed at the, the sort of Robot Wars thing. DARPA's heavily invested in this idea of like body modification, mm. super soldiers, things like that, the idea of you know making soldiers that don't have to sleep and things yeah. like that, for instance, aren't they? And it yeah. always seems to come back to weapons research. Yeah, I mean... It's a funny thing because, like, most transhumanists are... I wouldn't say most transhumanists are libertarians, but there's a definitely, like, a strong vein of libertarianism running through this, as there is in Silicon Valley generally. And so, like, Teal's a really strong example of that. But the biggest investor in transhumanism is the U.S. government through DARPA, um, just as Teal's biggest contracts are with the government. Yeah, I think, like, if this stuff happens... I would not discount the influence of DARPA there. I mean, it's it's difficult to know exactly what they're doing, but yeah, a lot of it does involve, like they're very interested in the sort of possibility of merging, you know, machine intelligence with, with humans. But uh, I think it's like as extreme as this stuff seems, like you can't discount how much of our technology that we use every day is a direct result of these crazy projects that DARPA have thrown themselves at in the past. I mean, the internet literally is the result of a DARPA kind of research project in the 60s. And you know, even like found my way here to this remote place in London by GPS, which is originally a sort of technology of war developed by DARPA. So, you know, these are, in a sense, kind of superhuman technologies. I have a, I have like a sort of a superhuman navigational capability that I would absolutely not have um, if it weren't for DARPA. So, yeah, these are war technologies that become kind of part of how we live our everyday lives and again it seems perfectly fine having that thing in in the palm of my hand rather than embedded into my yeah wrist. i'm fine with that too yeah but i think like the you know the grinders or whatever would i mean it's it's actually not that radical when you think about it they want the same technology they just don't want to have to use the phone they just want it in inside themselves um and so yeah there are i mean there are technologies you can get that allow you to sense magnetic north or whatever i wouldn't give up my phone for it so that's for sure Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen 
premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This is Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Mark O'Connell. We're talking about his book, To Be a Machine. And Mark, I want to move us on then to the transhumanist idea of not necessarily through mind uploads and things, but living longer, fighting death and beating death by just making human beings live hundreds of years or a thousand years. Let's start this off actually going back to a sort of 1950s, 1960s idea of living forever, cryogenics. Mm. You go to this place, Alcor. Tell us something about that facility. Well, yeah, so this was one of the first things I did for the book is I went to um, this place called Alcor Life Extension Foundation, which is just outside of Phoenix in Arizona. And it's, it's I think, the largest of the world's four cryonics facilities. There's three in Russia and... Uh, one, sorry, there's three in, three in the States one in Russia. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a cryonics preservation facility. Um, cryonics is basically the science, or a lot of people would say pseudoscience, of uh, preserving recently deceased human beings with a view to, at some point in the future, maybe 50 years, maybe 500 years, when the technology becomes sophisticated enough, reanimating those corpses. They don't call them corpses, they call them patients, in fact, because within the sort of logic of cryonics, um, these people are not seen as dead, they're seen as being sort of suspended in a, like a liminal sort of stasis between Indeed, they have, the, they have the oldest man in the world. But. Right, so one of, the, one of the things that I saw there was um, a cryonics pod from, from the late 60s, and there's a plaque saying this is um, where the first, first person was cryonically preserved, and the guy, Max Moore, who oversees the facility, he's a a kind of a philosopher of transhumanism. Uh, he's British, but he's um, he's sort of got himself into this sideline of running a cryonics facility as kind of almost like a public service in a way because it's it's a way to kind of ensure from their point of view that you get to the sort of transhuman future or whatever. But yeah, his, what he said to me was that, well, this is, um, you know, technically the oldest person in the world. And I said, well, hard, like hardly that's, that's, you know, he's dead, isn't he? And he was like, no, he's not dead. He's preserved. So um, yeah, there's, there's quite a sort of... Uh, there's a real sort of breakdown in, in how things are viewed by, by transhumanists and non-transhumanists. But yeah, cryonics is, um, well, it's hugely controversial to the point of not being taken seriously at all by mainstream science. But the interesting thing is that transhumanists or you know cryonicists 
they don't see it as being by any means a dead cert. They sort of look at it as maybe it works. You know, even if there's a small chance, it's better than nothing. It's better than sort of rotting away in the ground. So I'll take it. But it does almost seem, when we go on now to talk about, you know, some of the other ideas of, of the transhumanists, that, that cryonics is like a redundant technology because as far as they're concerned... I mean, you talk to um, Aubrey de Grey, who's mm-hmm. a, you know, a, a big name in that world. And Well, let's talk about this idea of um, longevity escape velocity, right. this sort of philosophy. What does that mean? Uh, well, longevity escape velocity is this idea that uh, Aubrey de Grey, who's a, uh, a biogerontologist, again, a very controversial figure, but sort of a figure of real hope for transhumanists. Um, and it's this idea that basically I'm going to have to oversimplify it, I think, because of the le- my sort of level of understanding of it is fairly primitive. But I think... Mm-hmm. Basically, the way Aubrey describes it is that for every, like, if you if you push out the sort of horizon of mortality by more than a year for every year that passes, you effectively get to a situation where you outrun death. So, yeah, the idea is that you would every year, five years, or however long, you would go and get a series of treatments done, and you would sort of push out your your own longevity by another five or ten years or whatever but um yeah it's, it's and then within that five or ten years the technology would come on even further it keeps getting more and more sophisticated yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah yeah um and yeah so aubrey there's a sort of two tracks almost to sort of immortality for transhumanists so aubrey's kind of uh version would be staying alive within your own sort of flesh and blood human body um and sort of you know, the upkeep of the machine of the body is something that he thinks can be achieved. Um, whereas the other kind of more radical, and I think probably more common view with transhumanists is that you leave behind the body altogether and you become sort of a disembodied or, you know, embodied in a robot or whatever, super intelligence. So those two things are not necessarily incompatible. I think a lot of transhumanists would say that, well, let's just go with Aubrey until we get to the singularity and then we, then we jump ship and become sort of immortal superintelligences and also cryonics even though a lot of transhumanists don't necessarily buy into cryonics it's seen as maybe a way of getting to that getting to that point if you die too soon to sort of benefit from the singularity maybe cryonics will be the thing that gets you there so Um, it's a series of sort of um bet hedgings and again as as we mentioned before this is a thing where there's serious silicon valley money being being put into these Mm. technologies you talk to a a young woman scientist laura deming yeah um, who's literally working on ways in which we can retard death, yeah. advance aging. What is she doing? Yeah, Laura is a pretty extraordinary person. She's um, very young. She's, I think, probably the youngest person I talked to for the book. She's 21, but she's a. Um, she dropped out of college um, at, I think, 17 or 18. 17, I think. She was offered a ton of money by Peter Thiel to drop out of college and start a venture capital fund specifically aimed at the at investing in the life extension space. So she runs this venture capital fund out of San Francisco that invests in uh, technologies and sort of um, medical innovations that might be used for extending lifespans. But she is, um, I don't think she would describe herself as a transhumanist. And she's very sort of measured in how she talks about her work and the kinds of things that she's investing in. But she kind of hinted at various points that she sort of tones it down in order not to seem like a starry-eyed lunatic for, you know, um, potential business partners and stuff like that. But she is absolutely driven by this sort of 
anxiety and terror about death. I mean, she talked about when she was like seven or eight years old, her grandmother coming to visit and trying to play with her grandmother and realizing that her grandmother couldn't play with her because she was really old and then sort of became apparent that her grandmother was going to die and she had this like like real sort of revelation that oh my god like this is something that happens to everyone and it needs to be addressed and she decided at a very young age that she was going to dedicate her life to solving this problem so there's a real sense among transhumanists that death is like a problem it's an issue that needs to be dealt with and we need to throw as much money and as much smarts and as much resources as we can at this problem and if we do like everything else, we'll solve it. I want to talk about one other person, Zoltan Istvan, mm. who's, um, we could tell us who he is, but he's basically taken it upon himself to popularise, shall we say, the ideas of transhumanism. Yeah, um, Zoltan's like a fascinating guy. I'm, he was one of the first people I met when I started reporting on the book. I met him at this conference in uh, in the Bay Area on uh, transhumanism and religion. And at that point, he was kind of a nobody in the movement. He just kind of, he was sort of an interloper. Um, he'd just written this book called The Transhumanist Wager, which is sort of a, a deeply unwieldy sort of Ayn Rand style novel of ideas about about transhumanism and yeah he was sort of trying to establish himself within the movement and I got to know him and I really sort of liked him he's very personable very kind of uh, charismatic guy who has this extraordinary kind of life story Uh, he left you know when he uh, graduated from college he studied philosophy in Colombia and he just he rented a or bought a fixed up a boat and just stocked it with sort of classic Russian novels and sailed around the world and sort of paid his way by doing um, by doing reports for National Geographic and so on and so he's this really kind of like almost like an embodiment of this sort of American ideal of the of the self made man but not that long after I sort of first got to know him he decided he was going to run for president in that way that Americans sometimes do just as a way to kind of achieve this version of yourself well screw it, I'll just run for president. Um, So yeah, his idea was that he was going to um, form a transhumanist political party and he was going to be the candidate and that he was going to run on a platform of sort of raising awareness about the problem of mortality and the need to uh, sort of divert government funds into investing in solutions for mortality. So what Zoltan did was he bought an old, it was a 1977 Bluebird Wander Lodge, like an old sort of classic American school bus that you see in all those films. And he converted it into like a giant coffin. He put all these kind of bits and pieces on it to make it look like a huge coffin driving along the highway and drove across the continental United States from San Francisco, which is where he lives, to Florida and then up to, to Washington, D.C. to he was The original idea was that he was going to nail a transhumanist bill of rights to the door of the rotunda of the of the Capitol building, which is, I think was an allusion to Martin Luther, the 95 theses. But so, yeah, he like he became quite a big deal subsequently. He was became kind of a media personage, and uh, I joined him uh, for part of his campaign, travelled across Texas with him, which was, yeah, it was incredibly fun and weird. <laughs> and this, of course, annoys most of the other transhumanists. Yeah, he's he's kind of, he's viewed with, like, suspicion, not to say contempt, by the sort of, the establishment transhumanists and that was one of the things that sort of Zoltan was very preoccupied by in the time that I spent with him was like this sort of tension between him and the the establishment and uh, yeah I think there's a lot of sort of resentment because he was getting a huge amount of media coverage and he was suddenly out of nowhere becoming the face of transhumanism and people who'd been in this space for you know decades were kind of like where did this guy come from this and that but you know it's a classic example of like he's a charismatic guy he's quite good looking he's plausible looking he's a good talker and you know the media just love him and the same reason that I was sort of drawn to spend time with him and write about him he's just a fascinating guy and that's what sort of sold him to people 
Well, it's, it's amazing that this guy is out there trying to popularise the idea, make mm. people aware that this is a thing that people are doing. But again, ultimately, and again, as you, as you mentioned throughout the book, the people that are behind this are the Peter Thiels of the world. Ultimately, the question is, who is going to get to live forever? It's going to be the super rich. Yeah, I think so. I think it's unquestionable. And that's a conversation that I had many times with transhumanists, and they're not convinced that that's the case. They want to believe, and they do believe, that these technologies will ultimately be available to everyone. What you get almost is a kind of a, a version of, like, sort of just good old-fashioned trickle-down economics that, you know, these technologies will, you know, at first be only available to the super-rich, to the Peter Thiels and the, you know, Eric Schmitz or whatever. And then, you know, just like iPhones got cheaper or more, more available technologies will become available to all of us and we'll all be able to live forever but I think that's I mean I to sort of lay my cards on the table I think it's highly unlikely that anyone is going to live forever even Peter Thiel but if these technologies do become available I think it's going to be those people who will who will reap the benefits there's an extraordinary a profile in the New Yorker that was written of Peter Thiel back in I think 2011 and the journalist writing the profile sort of brings up exactly this question like what you know why are you so invested in this this idea of death as a problem that needs to be solved when there are all these other issues like you know surely what's going to happen if we do get to a point where people can become immortal it's just going to increase the already kind of pretty vast sort of social inequalities that are already there in society and obviously Peter Thiel is the last person you should be saying that to because, you know, he just doesn't care about that stuff. But what he said was, well, the most radical form of inequality that there is is inequality between people who are living and people who are dead, which is really, like, bizarre, amazing, sort of revealing thing to say, I think. But that's how a lot of transhumanists do view it. It's, you know, we just need to think of it for what it is, which is a humanitarian catastrophe. Um, it just so happens that it's the one form of like inequality that is actually, you know, it's the great leveler, obviously, you know, we're all equally subject to death. Um, so, yeah, it makes sense that Peter Thiel would want to eradicate that. Yeah, I mean, basically what he's saying is, you know, why bother trying to deal with global warming? I'm just going to upload myself to a computer and sod off into space because right. I can afford to. Yeah, and failing that, he's got a compound down in New Zealand that he's uh, that he's got all lined up and ready to go and a helicopter pilot on retainer and stuff to take him down there if the shit hits the fan. So, yeah, he's sort of... I think he's the most fascinating person in the world right now. But, yeah, sort of comically, sort of... James Bond villain. Right, yeah, exactly, yeah. Yeah, I'm always sort of wary of saying anything about Peter Thiel. Yeah. He's listening. He did, it to, he did it to Gawker, he could do it to Little Adams. <laughs> um, well, just to finish off then, I mean, you just said, putting your cards on the table, you don't necessarily think any of this stuff is going to happen. But having been and spent time with these people, you went into the project as a definite sceptic. Mm. Did any of it rub off? Well, I don't think I ever came close to being converted or anything like that. But I did become more sceptical about my scepticism, I think. I mean, in a way, the least interesting thing for me as a writer is scepticism. Scepticism is just like, you know, it's it's not a particularly interesting thing to explore. Like, I think, yeah, in a way, obviously this stuff is, is quite remote. And, you know, these people have very strange ideas that, you know, of course... I'm skeptical about it. But I think what like what's most interesting to me is like why? Why is this a thing now? Why like why is this emerged at this particular moment in time and uh, what what does it come out of and what does it say to us about like our kind of broader faith in technology? So I think like for me transhumanism among all the many other things that it is and was was always a way to kind of sort of probe our own slightly kind of 
sort of quasi-religious faith in technology and the, like the prospect for progress through technology that that our kind of culture is is driven by in a more mainstream way. So yeah, I think for me, like transhumanism is sort of an extreme manifestation of sort of trends that are there in our culture anyway, and in in sort of capitalism broadly speaking. So yeah, I don't know. I don't think I was ever converted, but I, the thing for me is that like I was really drawn towards the ideas first and foremost, but like the people, like who are these people who believe that, who want to live forever and who think that it's desirable and achievable that we could become immortal. And yeah, the thing I kept seeing was that they're they're strange people with strange ideas, but they come from a very human place. And yeah, the sort of the thing that was revealed to me is like the fundamental humanity of these people. Um, some of it comes across in a comic way, but I hope, like, I hope I portray them in a way that is sort of respectful and sort of um, empathic. Well, perhaps I'll, I'll ask that question in another way. Then, did meeting these people and researching this book and writing it change your perspective on the life that we do have? Hmm. I think, like I say in the book, that I am going into this project to try and figure out what it means to be a machine, why people want to be a machine. But what actually happened to me was that I became more kind of confused about like what it actually is to be a human being. So like rather than sort of finding answers, I actually just deepened my own confusion. And um, there was a certain amount of sort of infection that happened with me, a certain amount of kind of, although I was never kind of convinced by these ideas, they did seep into my way of thinking about myself and way of thinking about the world. And like I just spent so long completely immersed in this, sort of very mechanistic view of what a human being is and, you know, what it means to be alive in a body. And so I found myself kind of thinking of myself as a machine quite a lot. Um, and that was something that I still get it every now and then. Like I look at my hands and kind of go, this is, what is this? This is like a, like what's happening here? It's particularly when I'm writing, actually. Like I, I have moments where I think of myself as just like a recording instrument or if I'm doing an interview or whatever or if I'm sort of trying to get work done, I think of myself in sort of quite instrumentalist terms like I wrote 1000 words today you know or maybe I'll write 1500 words tomorrow and there's this like sense that I can slip into and I think people generally of yourself as kind of an input output mechanism or whatever and so it really made me think about that stuff and that stuff is not necessarily about transhumanism it's part of the kind of logic of our culture or the logic of capitalism that we're sort of forced to think of ourselves in these quite mechanistic quite instrumentalist terms so in a way the book is you know partly about that and to the extent that this stuff got to me or changed how I think it was through that I think. So I've been talking to Mark O'Connell we've been talking about his book To Be a Machine Adventures Among Cyborgs Utopians Hackers and the Futurists Solving the Modest Problem of Death which is out now from Grant and Mark thank you so much for coming in and sharing it with us. Thanks so much for having me. You've been listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by Neil Denny and was broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. You can find the Little Atoms podcast on iTunes and you can follow the show on Twitter at Little Atoms. If you'd like to donate a little money to support the show, you can do so at littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.